regret is our most misunderstood emotion. And we have this reigning philosophy on my side of the Atlantic, on your side of the Atlantic, of no regrets. The idea that regret makes us weak, the idea that we should be positive, the idea that we should never look back. And there is 60 years of science saying that is incorrect, that what we know from a whole body of research is that regret is one of the most common emotions that we have. It's also one of the most useful emotions that we have. Ignoring our regrets leads to delusion. Wallowing in them leads to despair. What we want to do is we want to confront them. We want to think about them. And what we have in a whole body of research are some ways to do that. It's actually a relatively simple three-step process where we can treat ourselves with some degree of kindness. We can disclose our regrets to make sense of them, and we can extract a lesson from them going forward. This is really the key. I feel like we haven't been taught well enough how to deal with negative emotions in general, let alone this particular negative emotion, which is arguably our most common one. Hello, and welcome to Working It with me, Isabel Barrick. Today, we're talking regret. We've all got many workplace regrets. I know I regret, for example, not going for promotions or bigger jobs much earlier in my career, because at that time I didn't think I'd be able to cope with both that and my kids. But is it time to stop feeling negative and like a failure and start embracing regret? And what can we learn about ourselves when we do it? Well, that was New York Times bestselling author Daniel Pink, whose recent book, The Power of Regret, explains exactly that, how looking back can help us to push forward. My FT colleague Andrew Hill sat down with Daniel a couple of weeks ago to discuss his theories, and I'm pleased to say Andrew joins me now in the studio to unpack his interview. Andrew, welcome. Thank you for having me. Andrew, can you give us a little overview of Daniel Pink's work? Because he's pretty well known in sort of management and workplace circles, isn't he? Yes, I suppose he fits into the same category as people like Simon Sinek and Malcolm Gladwell, who have made a career out of digesting often indigestible academic research and turning it into very grabby ideas, which they can write up for a series of books. Um, Dan Pink is probably best known for Drive, a book about motivation, but he started out as an author writing about actually some of the things that Working It has been talking about. Free Agent Nation was his first book about autonomy and the freelance life. And he was before that a speechwriter for Al Gore, the vice president of the United States. So he's moved into something that is almost a taboo subject, regrets and failure. Why do you think that persists, Andrew? Why do we not talk about it? Well, I think it's partly a function of positive thinking, which is another area of sort of social psychology, if you like, that has taken off in the last 20 or 30 years, because positive thinking essentially, among other things, makes us think we shouldn't look back at things that have gone wrong, that we've got to forge forward. Of course, there's the Edith Piaf song with which Dan Pink begins his book, The Power of Regret, I don't regret anything. And that has sort of fed into the bloodstream of people that we should constantly look forward and not go back and wallow in our regrets, which, incidentally, Dan Pink also agrees with. We shouldn't wallow, Mm. but he sees regrets as something more useful. What's your biggest regret, Andrew? I I think there's a regret of boldness. I mean, I feel a little bit, as you said about your earlier career, that there are things that I could have done with the platform 
and privileges that I've had that could have been bolder. I'm not somebody who has lots of regrets that I wallow in, but I have been very interested in this book, partly because I think it does find a way to allow us to use these regrets to make positive change. So let's hear what Daniel has to say about harnessing that power in a really effective way. Jeff Bezos had this regret minimization framework right. approach to right. career and work and so on. Right. You turn that more positively into a regret optimization yeah. framework. Talk yeah. a little bit about well, that. Well, I think that Bezos is smart to some extent. Like it is helpful for us to make decisions today that anticipate our regrets tomorrow. However, if you look at the research on anticipated regret, it comes with some caveats. That is, when we anticipate our regrets, we sometimes make risk-averse decisions because certain kinds of prospective failures are more salient than the unknown. And so we end up making suboptimal decisions. But the other thing, and this comes out of the World Regret Survey, is that around the world, people seem to have the same four regrets over and over and over again. And so as we anticipate our regrets, what we should be doing is focusing on those things that I'm pretty confident that people will regret. Let me make it concrete. The me of 10 years from now, the me of 2032, is not going to care what I have for dinner tonight. Okay. If I'm saying, oh, what should I have for dinner tonight? Should I have pasta? Should I have fish? Which will I regret more? All right. The me of 2032 is not going to care about that. But what the me of 10 years from now is going to care about if we believe this chorus of voices telling me their regrets is, did I act boldly when I have a chance? Did I do the right thing? Did I reach out and maintain connections and love with other people? The me of 23 is going to care about that. And so what we need to do is we need to maximize on the things we know are going to matter to us in the future and actually chill out about almost everything else. Right. So to me, Bezos is like on the right track. You just take a slightly different train because if you try to minimize every regret, you're going to drive yourself nuts. So there's some really interesting ways of thinking about regret there. And I think that mindset of what would the me 10 years from now care about is something we could all start to adopt. Andrew, what did you take away from that interview with Daniel? So one thing I've been doing is recommending the book. And that doesn't happen always when I read business books. Um, and, you read an awful lot of business yeah, books. Uh, that is true. Possibly a regret that I need to uh, factor in. But I have been pushing the idea and the underlying idea that he mentions in the book of regret being a photographic negative. In other words, it tells you what you should be doing if you were to switch the regret round for the rest of your career or life. So that seems a very powerful image to me. Of course, it's not an image that works for anyone under a certain age who has no idea what a photographic negative is, but it does seem to me a quite a useful lesson to take. And as you know, I've just changed jobs and I'm applying some of the things that I regret not having done in the previous role that I had to the new role, or at least I hope to. So I think I've taken away some quite practical ideas and that's obviously what he intends with the book. It's much more than a theoretical or academic idea. So let's see what some of the readers thought about your interview with him, which I'll put in the show notes. I like this one. I regret I didn't come up with this idea for a book. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a really thoughtful one that I wanted to read. So 
Dan Pink reckons that people and organisations are now quite porous and we can move between acting and working for ourselves or others. And he thinks our employers need us more than we need them and so on. So don't regret making that jump from corporate life if it's not right for you, essentially. So here's FT reader Nostromo. Hey, Andrew, appreciate the article, but it seems to me at first blush to be BS. For those of us who recognise these regrets and left the corporate scene, it turned out to be a one-way ticket. In my experience, should you leave the corporate scene, no one's willing to rehire you. I left to work for charity during COVID, but can I get back into an office now? No, no one who's worked in a corporate scenario is interested in hiring us. The majority of people who take these steps should be told to expect rejection after rejection after rejection if they try to bring their newfound achievements back to the office. There's no free lunch. So there's someone who's sort of taken action, gone off on their own, and it sounds to me like they regret it slightly. Yes. I mean, that's a very specific one, isn't it, relative to a particular moment we're in. It's sort of surprising in a sense because, of course, we read about tight labour markets and the demand for talent. I mean... We addressed this in the interview in that some of the regrets expressed in the book and in the surveys that Pink did are regrets of careers. Usually it is people regretting having stayed in a job or gone into business rather than pursuing their artistic desires or their creative urges. He very clearly says that most of the responses are people who look back with no regret to having taken action and left their day job and moved on to something else. In fact, he said in direct answer to a question that the bias for action is the lesson from the survey when it comes to career decisions. So this person may be an exception. I mean, I'm sympathetic, obviously, but reversing course at that point and coming back into the workforce has obviously proved to be more difficult for this. Yeah, it's interesting to have the opposite viewpoint, but I think we perhaps should all take a little bit more action. And I was wondering how managers could adopt some of Dan Pink's ideas. I mean, there's a big trend now towards admission of you know, vulnerability. Regret might be part of that. Do you think there's a point at which we can use regret in feedback or is there something quite applicable in the workplace here? Absolutely. I, I think actually if you're doing regular feedback, which as you know I'm a fan of, and indeed boring old performance appraisals, if people say, well, you know, I had a good year, but I regret not having written more in-depth features. I mean, that clearly is a clue to what could happen in the following year. And so this photographic negative image applies. You flip it and you say, well, actually, maybe that's something that you can work out how to do in the next two years of your career. Admitting failure is something that's quite hard in the workplace. And here's what Dan had to say about the distinction between regret and failure. I think that every failure is not a source of regret because regret has an affective state. That is, you feel bad, okay? And so you don't necessarily feel bad about every failure. The other thing is that regret requires agency. It's your fault. And a lot of times failure isn't necessarily your fault. This actually, it's a great point because it's something that surfaced for me in writing that failure resume, which is, this is an idea from Tina Selig at Stanford University. You list your failures, your screw-ups, your missteps and everything in one column. And then in the second column, this is the key, you list what lesson you learned from it. And when I did that, what I discovered is that sometimes there wasn't a lesson. And that's the difference between failure and regret, that sometimes there was no lesson to extract. It's just right. things didn't work out. Bad luck, circumstance. And that's actually a relief 
to distinguish failure from regret. Now, there were other failures that were clearly my fault, and it helped me identify that. And then in the third column, you write what you're going to do going forward. And so, again, I think the systematic approach of dealing with negative emotions is something that we weirdly haven't been taught how to do. And so that's why people get captured by these negative emotions and also why they fight the fool's game of trying to keep these negative emotions at bay, ignore them, pretend that they don't exist with this very performative, no regrets philosophy. I wonder what you think about that old Silicon Valley thing about embracing failure and yeah. celebrating failure. I've always worried a little bit about that. It seems yeah. a rather chilly place to be embracing. I'm not sure because I feel it's not honored very much in practice. No. I think it's an appealing philosophy. I think it's a form of virtue signaling by business leaders, but it's not actually what they really want because most of them don't like failure. Once again, it's something that we're not taught how to do very well. We've been sold this bill of goods about you have to be positive all the time. You have to look forward all the time. That's nonsense. That's not how our brains work. Our brains are programmed for regret. What you want to do is you want to find that middle path where you're, I know it's a crazy idea, but thinking about your regrets. I think making that distinction between failure and regrets is really important. And I love the idea of a failure resume or CV, as we'd say in Britain, and thinking positively about how we could learn from our failures. But how could we adopt that in our working lives, Andrew? I'm quite puzzled because there is a, this bias towards positivity. It's very hard to do anything or say anything negative in the workplace. Well, I think we could adopt a bit more of an analytical approach to say, OK, something went wrong. We've got to learn from it, as Pink says in the interview, and we can take a few moments. It may not necessarily need to be an entire post-mortem of thinking through what went wrong and why and not repeating those errors. There's another concept that I don't think is mentioned in the book, but which is out there in management circles, which is the idea of a sort of pre-mortem where you talk in advance of a project about what might go wrong and why and list in the event that it went terribly, what were the things that caused that? So you imagine the scenario of failure in order to avoid making the mistakes before you start the project. I like that. That sort yeah. of appeals to an anxious workforce that we all are at the moment. It's like yes. catastrophizing things. <laughs> I mean, it may fall into the trap that Pink mentions of anticipating and therefore becoming too risk averse. There is a danger there, but... He's all about balance in this discussion about regret and failure, I feel. Not going completely ignoring your regrets creates a sort of delusional mentality. Diving into your regrets and going, oh, it was so terrible. I made a mistake in 1970 that I can never reverse is equally damaging. Yeah, I think that's probably for our therapists, not for the workplace. Yeah. But what we can probably say is that we should embrace regret, but not get hung up on it and use it as a spur to change how we behave in future. So as we get older, it has to become more of a bias to action, actually. It seems to me there's something generational here. Is that correct? One thing that his research showed out, all his surveys showed consistency across country and across sector, and the same regrets kept surfacing. But there was the 
exception that the older people were, the more likely they were to regret not having tried something. There are some things, I realise that we are still young and supple, but there are still some things, Isabel, that we probably won't do in our careers. You've got all these opportunities when you're younger. You don't have to worry too much about having failed in something because you can move on to something else more easily. And maybe we accrete when we're older in our careers, some of these kind of cautious ways of approaching. And, and that's certainly how I'm taking it to exchange that for a bit more boldness in late career moves. I'm really interested in what Daniel has to say, and Andrew's framed it really well. I've been thinking myself that we do all need to perhaps have a bias towards action. And especially as we get older, we do regret the paths not taken. So we still have opportunities to take those paths. And I think Daniel's made that quite explicit and has helped us to frame it. And we can help our staff, if we're managers, to be bold and take those paths too and not regret the things they didn't do or the rash things that went wrong. I think this is a brilliant way of reframing our lives in a much more positive way while actually embracing the stuff that doesn't always go right for us. I really like it. So anyway, I won't be here next week because I'll be trekking across the Sahara. So thank you so much to Daniel Pink and Andrew Hill for this episode. Please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at workingit at ft.com or with me at Isabel Berwick on Twitter. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're an FT subscriber, please sign up for our Working It newsletter. It's got the best of FT reporting on the future of work, plus some exclusive content you won't get anywhere else sign up at ft.com forward slash newsletters. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. Thanks to the producers Anna Sinfield and Harry Cook, executive producer Joe Wheeler, and mix from Chris O'Shaughnessy. For the FT, we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan and Manuela Saragossa, and production support from Persis Love. Thanks for listening.